Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez Packham. Welcome back to the Age of Victoria, the second minisode. The first one seemed to be popular, so I thought we'd do another one. This has actually been a really busy week for me. My little boy turned five and we had a superhero party. It was great fun and even Wonder Woman came. Planning that has made research for the main show tough, uh, but I've managed to stay on track actually. I'm pleased to say that It is still on track to go out on the first of the month, as always. And I've been using my new audio gear for the first time. I'm very excited with my new toys here. And hopefully you're all noticing a jump in audio quality. For those of you who have expressed an interest in the research process for the main show, well, a lot of it involves secondhand textbooks from Amazon and bookstores to flesh out my topic outline that I picked and then a blitz on journal articles. That means a ton of reading and making notes. I carry a little notebook everywhere I go, along with a selection of fountain pens with various inks. I love a little fountain pen called the Carwico Sport, using diamine ancient copper ink to make notes. I can seriously recommend uh, planning and writing with good quality fountain pens, that you can refilm from bottles of ink. They're very tactile, they make your writing more considered, you get a beautiful variety of uh, colours of ink, and actually it's in some ways it's more environmentally friendly. Instead of throwing away endless disposable pens and adding to that awful plastic mountain out in the Pacific Ocean, a fountain pen should last you a lifetime. Anyway, that's enough about my life for now, I think. The Victorian thing that has struck my attention this week, came through the post. I'm a serious coffee addict and I'm a member of a coffee club from Cafe Direct that sends quality beans through the post. And each month I get not just the packet of beans, uh, they come with a little leaflet explaining interesting things and facts about the variety you're tasting, where it was grown, a bit about the region. This month's coffee was from Indonesian uh, Sara'ate, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. My apologies to any Indonesian listeners I might have. Anyway, according to the leaflet, the coffee trade was immensely profitable to the Dutch East India Company in the 18th century. And the corruption of markups meant that growers saw next to nothing of the actual profits from their excellent coffee. Then, in May 1860, a Dutchman, Eduard Duez Decker, published a powerful novel called Max Havilar, or The Coffee Auctions of the Dutch Trading Company, to highlight colonial injustices. It was a biting satire and a great example of the reformist tendencies of the 19th century and helped in its way to develop the philosophy of the future fair trade movement. I was interested and decided to do a little digging. It turns out Decker was a disappointed civil servant in the Dutch East Indies who wrote the book under the pseudonym Multatuli. It's interesting to note that Multatuli translates to I suffer or I endure. This is particularly apposite 
as the author was a penniless, unemployed 40-year-old at the time. It is still in print today and has been translated into 42 languages. In 1999, the Indonesian writer Promida Ya Anta Doe, and I'm really sorry if I've got that name wrong, I'm absolutely sure I butchered the pronunciation there. Anyway, he referred to the book in the New York Times as the book that killed colonialism. And what has given the book a a sort of timeless importance is not just the place it has in the history of anti-colonial movements, but the ambiguous complexity of the book itself. It is a mix, not just of fact and fiction, it is also a mix of narrative, voices, styles and forms. This has made subsequent analysis of the text heated with the factual accuracy of the text, and even how accurate it was intended to be, becoming issues of vicious contention. The book swings between narrators and slowly brings the story of the fight against oppression to the centre stage, only at the end to make a hard turn and suddenly discard all the fictional characters to switch to a direct narrative from the author. It is plainly a humanist and progressive text and would seem to hint at a religious upright reformist character in the abolitionist mould. Decker was born on the 2nd of March 1820 to strict Protestant parents. His older brother was a priest and he was initially planning to follow in those footsteps. So it's a background that was certainly fit into that sort of classic religious mould. Still, it is said that an author must have lived, and Decker certainly did. He was actually far from the upright religionist you might be picturing so far. He dropped out of school and sailed on his father's ship for a while, before he joined the Dutch East Indian Civil Service, aged around 18. The Dutch East Indies are today called Indonesia. The Dutch East India Company was the most powerful European force during the 16th and 17th century. By 1800, it had dissolved, and direct colonial government was imposed by the Dutch. Decker's first love affair was with a Roman Catholic girl, and it was thwarted when his prospective father-in-law blocked the marriage. This was not on religious grounds. Decker offered to convert to Roman Catholicism showing admirable religious flexibility in support of true love. The real objection was that, even at around 19 years old, Decker had a reputation as a man who enjoyed prostitutes immensely, and worse, he was a hot-headed duelist. He was indifferent to money, gambling it, and even buying slaves to set them free. The girl's father probably justifiably feared that his daughter might end up a penniless widow, pregnant and with a venereal disease. Decker's temper flared in a theatre one night, when some of the audience members jeered an actor, and Decker gave three of them a beating. He was arrested, but let off, before becoming appointed a district officer in the town at twenty years old. Whilst in post, he had a fling with a native girl aged thirteen, before having a run-in with his superiors and being arrested for financial irregularities. Eventually cleared, he then somehow managed to marry a baroness. He was known to be intelligent and hard-working, 
so promotions followed. To prove that human nature can be very self-destructive though, he also managed to gamble away another fortune and go bankrupt. A new service posting as assistant resident of Lebac in Java followed. This almost inevitably got him involved in a murder plot. The previous resident was thought to have been murdered, and it seems like Decker was to be dealt with the same way. Presumably on political grounds, or just because that's how Decker rolled. Of course, Decker, being Decker, was outraged by the abuses of the poor natives committed by the powerful local regent, seemingly abetted by the Dutch colonial authorities. Decker had naively collected evidence of the regent's various crimes, and when the Dutch resident, his direct superior, refused to support the charges, Decker went over his head to the Governor-General. Instead of seeing justice done, the Governor-General rebuked Decker. Decker now went back to Europe. Penniless and unemployed, he settled into a small hotel to write his masterpiece. It was a broadside against official corruption, colonialism and oppression. Naturally, he ended up at war with his editor and his publishers, because Decker clearly didn't use doors when there was a wall he could run into head first. His book began to create a political firestorm and later led to important reforms in Java. His later life was more settled and he remarried after his first wife's death. Whether he continued to gamble and visit prostitutes is an open question, but it seems unlikely. What I find wonderful about this is that the biography of Decker can read like a classic 19th century rogue, but his works and actions were unashamedly anti-slavery and progressive. He was clearly a complex person. I often muse that the modern age struggles with the complexity of character, whereas the Victorian age revelled in it. Can you imagine someone who had been arrested twice, was a known duelist, and known to have committed assaults in public, and visiting prostitutes, being allowed to hold official positions? It certainly doesn't seem very likely today. I'm delighted to say that the Max Havler Foundation actually exists today and is an independent, non-profit organisation that licences the use of the Fair Trade Certification Mark on products in the Netherlands in accordance with the internationally agreed Fair Trade Standards. This is a roundabout way of saying that even my cup of coffee has Victorian overtones these days. There's just no getting away from them. I hope you enjoyed this little story. Sadly, the week has ended on a on a tragic note. This is the week, for those of you who have heard about it, of the enormous fire in the tower block in South London. So what had started out as a really happy and upbeat week actually is left tinged with tragedy. So I can only hope that uh, next time I do a mini-sode, the news is a bit less grim. Anyway, take care of yourselves and I look forward to hearing from you. If you want to get in touch, please just uh, email me at the usual address, ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or leave a comment in the Facebook group. 